All right. Well, we're in Romans 13, and uh, this is a new chapter for us. And so we're today, I have to tell you, because of our limited time this morning um, with our communion celebration and missions update and prayer time for those affected by the the flood, uh, we're just going to introduce this. So we're not probably even going to get through the outline on the back side of the page there. We'll start that next week. But um, to start off, I want to read for us Romans chapter 13. And um, you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes this, verse 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, After coming out of chapters 1 through 11 in Romans, that told us all about how God has provided for us a righteousness, a justification. It tells us about being justified by grace through faith. Um, It really describes what it is to be a Christian, chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. And then we got to chapter 12. And it was a glorious time we spent there, and it describes how being a Christian is to be practically uh, lived out. In other words, Paul in chapter 12 says, now that 
you're saved, now that you understand that you've been justified by grace through faith, you're a believer, you're born again, you're transformed. Well, well, now, how do you practically live this life? And so in chapter 12, he basically tells us, because you've been blessed with all these benefits, I mean, when you stop and you start writing down benefits of your salvation, I just pen down a couple, forgiveness, grace, love, faith, justification, sanctification, eternal security. I mean, you can just go on and on and on and on. Peace. Um, You know, now that you have all that from God's hand, Paul kind of asks the question, well, now what in chapter 12? What are you going to do with that? What's our response to that? Well, he says there, remember, in verse 1 of chapter 12, present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. In other words, now that God has given you all this stuff, all these blessings, these spiritual blessings in Christ, guess what? Give it all back to the Lord. Give everything you are back to God. Your soul, your body, your mind, your will. Give it all to him. That's what Paul is calling us to do throughout chapter 12. And it's the idea of personal sacrifice. Give everything to the Lord. And as a result of that, he says, if, if you do that, you're going to have a proper relationship with God as one of his children. See, if you just give it all up ahead of time, then God doesn't have to pry it from your white knuckled fingers, you know, as you hold on to these things. Just give it to him. He'll let you use it while you're here. He'll bless you. But see, that gives us a proper relationship with God. And so if you respond to salvation and you understand that God has given you salvation, that he saved you, and you're willing to give this all back to him, then you're going to have that right relationship with the Lord. And then in verses 3 through 13 of Romans 12, he talks about having a proper relationship with the family of God, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. He talks about things like, hey, you know, you need to love folks. You need to use your gifts. God has blessed us all with spiritual gifts. We need to make sure that we're using them for his glory. We don't just come and sit in church once a week and that's all we do. You should be utilizing your gift in and out of the church, in your job, where you go to school, your neighbors, and yes, right here in the church. And so he goes on, he says, love, love people, be kind to them, all these things in verses 3 through 13. And then in verse 14 to 21, he says, if your life is presented in chapter 12 there to the Lord and you have right relationships with the body of Christ, then next, he says, you should have right relationships with your non-believing friends. And then lastly, in verses 17 to 21, he says, with, even with your enemies. Um, so 14 to, to 16 is with the, the non, non-believing friends you may have, and we should all have non-believing friends in our lives. Don't believe that as a Christian, when you become a Christian, you cloister yourself and you go join a monastery somewhere and live up on a hill all by yourself. And that's not what Christ has called us to do. He said to go into the world, preach the gospel, be light, right? Be salt, Those are things that have to be present. If they're not present, they have no effect. 
And so we need to be reminded of that. And so Romans 12 got us all up to the, the point of, okay, we have a proper relationship with God because he saved us, that's 1 through 11. But then he says also you have a proper relationship with the body of Christ. You have a proper relationship with those who are outside of the body of Christ, your non-believing Christian friend, or non-Christian friends. And then you also have a proper relationship even with your enemies, Paul says. This is our calling as believers, and so what he's saying is, you know what? Your Christianity should impact every segment of your life. Not just the Sunday segment. It should impact every segment. And that's really getting at the heart of what Paul says here. When he talks about all this stuff about salvation up to this point, he's really getting right to this, this part of the book. So he can say, look, you know, knowing what God has done for you, your response needs to be very simple. Your response to God for what he has done to you is basically give him your life. Sacrifice your life, your body, your soul, your mind, your will, everything. Everything you have is his anyway. You just have to give up the right to it because we live in a right-dominated, rights-dominated society. So we feel we all have rights. Well, guess what? No, you don't. Not in Christ. You surrendered those rights when you came to Christ. So when you're giving him everything you have, the right relationship with each other, the right relationship with God, the right relationship even with enemies, you bless them, you don't curse them. What all comes down here when he begins in verse 1 of chapter 13 Because he says there's another essential part of all of our lives. This doesn't matter if you live in our country, you live in another country, you live in another part of the world. It doesn't matter. It's not just talking about people in the United States. As Christians, the question is, what is our relationship to our government biblically? That's what we need to ask. That's what Paul will tell us as we go through systematically this chapter 13. It's really an essential part of our life. It affects us in every aspect of our life. Because the government, the word of God says, is what? Instituted by who? By God. See, we have a small mind here in the U.S. We think, you know, we think like Republican, Democrat, and, you know, independent, and we think the rest of the world doesn't exist. There's nothing wrong with being proud to be in our country and you know our country stands for a lot of good things but you also have to come to the bottom line that this is not the only country (laughs) and unfortunately this country has gone through some hard times to the point where you can honestly i mean you would be far stretched to have to believe that god is still has his hand of blessing on this country I think it's a hand of judgment, personally, because we've so lost our way. But we're still to have a good relationship with this government. It's This passage that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks is probably the clearest passage on what a Christian should consider when dealing with their government. And like I said, it's not just our country. You could read this in any country, and it would still apply. 
So it's a very important passage, but you have to understand it. You have to understand what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> because the, the idea that our Christians' relationship to government is a very important issue, it's always been that way. This hasn't changed with time. It's just as relevant for us as it was for Paul back in his day. Christians have always had to face this issue. They've always had to struggle with it. And the church is in all kinds of different countries with all kinds of different governments and different rulers and different styles of ruling. And it's the same issue. How do we deal with this as believers? And so Christians have always tried to deal with this matter. How do you respond to your government? Now, I think probably in our country, we've had a little less trouble with this than in some. You look at some communist nations, things like that. I mean, Christians have to hide and, you know, all sorts of things because they're not allowed to worship as Scripture commands them to do. And so we have to stop and we have to say, well, where's that line? In other words, where do we, okay, we obey the government until when? (laughs) All right? And because there is a line there, and we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. But we've lived in somewhat of a, I would say, a Christian-influenced society. Would you agree? This country is basically built on Christian Judeo ethics, and, and we've been blessed by that. Now, that's rapidly changing. We see that even as we live today. You just pick up the newspaper and read some things. You can see that very clearly. But it wasn't that way for them in the New Testament. It definitely wasn't. Um, Even for the Romans who received this letter from Paul, the believers in Rome at the time, um, they've had to struggle with this relationship, and they did, with the government. And unfortunately, in our own country, we haven't always answered that question as a church, not our church, but as a church in general, um, correctly. I remember when I was going to Christian college, there was a big movement. Most of you probably remember it called the moral majority. And it was an evangelical evangelical, movement. a Christian organization that had at its main goal to influence politicians and stand for morality. It stood for a lot of good things. I remember going down to uh, when I was at Christian Heritage College and Tim LaHaye was the, the, the pastor of the church there and the president. And uh, he was involved with, with part of this. His wife um, started an organization called concerned woman for America. And so I remember days when we would go to church and there'd be all these picketers out in front of the church, you know, picketing the church because they were taking a certain stance. And there, there was a real belief that somehow if Christians could get elected into office and somehow if Christians could just infiltrate uh, the swamp as we know it today, if they could somehow infiltrate it, then everything would be okay. And somehow that, you know, our churches would be full and everything would be good. And they were looking in the totally wrong direction. You know, they were looking to influence our country by applying Christian ethics to the, to the, to the rule of law and, and the outside. When we all know that the only way you're going to change somebody is what? From within. 
okay, from the heart. And so there's been a lot of things done in the name of Christ, um, boycotts, all kinds of things. Uh, It was 25 decisions of the United States Supreme Court. They used the phrase um, separation of church and state. They, they use, they'd like to use that phrase. And we're all familiar with that. Um, what's unfortunate is most people would say, well, yeah, that's in the Constitution. Well, it's really not. It was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a group called the Danbury Baptists back in 1802. And here's what he said in the letter. I think it's up there on the screen. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to no other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate the sovereign with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So the purpose of this article was not to influence, uh, or one that wasn't to renounce Christian uh, or, or give, you know, a uh, kind of a blanket thing to a bunch of pagan religions, but it was to really exclude all rivalry among Christian denominations. And it really meant to prevent any national establishment of a religion which would allow, oh, you're a Christian, well, then you get more than, than this person over here who's Jewish or whatever. That was the purpose of it. As a matter of fact, the Constitution of the United States says in its First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Notice it says peaceably to assemble (laughs) uh, to the petition and petition the government for a redress redress of of grievance. So. What does that that mean? So politicians take that and say, oh, the church and the state, we can't have anything. So you can't be in politics and and offer up a prayer or part of a city council and offer up a prayer. That's separation of church and state. Well, that's not the original intent of that. And they've walked all over that. But I would say that one of the, the worst things that the church has done is made it a kind of a, a, a very high interest to somehow influence the political nature of our country. Because what happens is it really politicizes the church itself. And you know what? The, the church is not meant to be um, politicized. That's really, I would say, prostituting the church. And so we have to be careful when we talk about this issue. And this is all just to kind of lay a foundation. Um, the, the church is not to become some, you know, flag-waving, lobbying, protesting voice for government change. That's not our calling as believers. And it's unfortunate that so many people have bought into that. 
and you know, to be honest, I mean, I went back to a uh, Washington DC gathering of pastors and it was a good, you know, family research search uh, center put it on several years ago and I went back there and, and I had a blessed time and there was worship. There was all kinds of things, but then you had these politicians come in and, and give their little speech. And, and I thought, this is interesting because, you know, as I sat around tables with other quote believers, I realized that they weren't believers. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they threw such a wide net for this deal that it was, you know, beyond reason that I would even have fellowship with these people because some of them were frankly, there, there was people there from cults. There was people there from the Catholic faith. There was people, you know, so everybody's linking arms and singing Kumbaya. And I thought, wow, I, I have a hard time with this. And it's all for the sake of getting behind something politically, whether it's abortion, whether it's the sanctity of marriage, whatever it is. In other words, we sacrifice everything theologically, just so we can have one voice in this area. And we have to be careful with that. We really have to be careful with that. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, human beings live forever while the state is only temporal and thus is reserved to comparative insignificance and to spend our time altering the state when you could spend your time giving people eternal salvation is definitely a bad bargain. (laughs) See, if we abandon the message which gives the eternal soul life and forgiveness from God in favor of some temporal change in our government, we're really prostituting the gospel that we so love. John MacArthur put it this way. He he likens it to a heart surgeon who has the skill to save many lives through his surgical skills. But he abandons his life-saving practice to become a makeup artist. (laughs) He just wants to fool around with the outside of somebody's face and ignore the skill that could save their life. And sometimes I think that's what the church is bought into. If we just elect the right people, if we just do this, if we just get behind this, or if we, you know, I mean, my mailbox is, my email box is inundated with political stuff. And I just get so frustrated. I mean, some of them are good conservative politicians, but they'll write you. And, you know, if you would just give, you know, $25, I always write back. And I know they don't get it, but I just have to get it out of my system. You got a lot more money than I'll ever have. Pay for your own campaign. You know, I know it doesn't go to anybody, but I get so irritated when, you know, they're constantly asked. And, and there's Christians that spend much resources thinking that somehow this is going to change the whole country. Now, I'm not one that says that we should pull out of politics altogether and not have a voice. God has allowed us in this country to have a vote and we should vote biblically according to biblical standards, blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff. You've heard it. But at the same time, we can't believe that that's, Our only hope. Because I'll tell you, politicians and politics and even government has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. And so we have to be reminded of that. I'd even go as far as to say scripture speaks not at all, nowhere, of a Christian engaging in politics. Doesn't speak of it. It has nothing to say about it other than the fact that we're to be model citizens. 
It speaks nothing about Christians engaging in civil change. That's not to be our priority as the church. It doesn't mean that we're not involved as citizens. Where we can be, I mean, we should be. But it's a question of priority. In the Old Testament, for example, they had what they called the Israel, who was a priestly nation. And by design, Israel was to bring men to God. That's what they were to do. That's their whole role. That's why God gave them the word of God. And within that structure, God gifted them with priests. And their primary function was to do just that, kind of to help them in their relationship with God, whether it's doing the sacrificial things, whatever it might be. And there were others who could take care of the, 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 the social issues, but that wasn't the priest's focus. The priest's focus was the spiritual nature of their relationship with God. That was God's design. And see, that gave identity to that whole nation of Israel. They could not abandon the role of bringing men and women to God. That's what they were supposed to do. The church is the same thing. The only reason we're here on planet Earth is to give the gospel to those who've yet to believe. That's it. The Bible calls us even kingdom priests. He doesn't say, oh, you're kingdom politicians. See, our design by God was to bring men, bring women, bring children to God. So does that mean that we just abandon everything and not go vote? No, I'm not saying that. Like I said, we need to be involved where it's logically sound to be involved. But I also realize that, you know what? Change doesn't come at the ballot box. Change comes from sharing Christ with someone and seeing someone saved and changed, transformed internally. See, we have to be about administrating the things of God. We have to be about administrating the kingdom of God. We can't lose sight of that as the church. So as we approach this chapter, and speaking of the Christian's role in government, we have to be careful This has nothing to do with politicizing the church. It has nothing to do with lobbying or petitioning or anything like that. But it has to do with our divine calling and our divine priority as Christians. I'll say it this way. There's no biblical mandate for us to spend time, money, or energy in politicking or engaging in the matters of civil government. We're not of this world. Now, we're to be the conscience of the nation, but we're to do that by godly living, by faithful preaching the word of God. We confront people, not through political pressure, but through the word of God. Because we know that's the only thing that's going to stand. That's how we confront the nation. That's how we confront sin. We preach against the evils of our time. And trust me, there's a lot to be preached against. Just watch the news. Or better yet, don't. But it is preaching and godly living. That's what God has called us to do. 
The last time I checked, the Bible doesn't say, how will they hear without a politician? (laughs) Doesn't say that. How will they hear without a what? A preacher. And trust me, we're all as believers, preachers. We all have that message of the gospel on our lips. Well, we need to look to Christ for our example. Because as we lay this foundation for this passage down, I want us not to lose sight of the times in which this was written. The times in which Christ lived. I mean, Christ, when he was born, he came into a very interesting world. It pales in comparison to ours. As far as what was going on. A lot more was going on politically in his day and age. He came into a Roman Empire where slavery flourished. One commentator says there were three slaves, approximately three slaves to every free man. That's how popular slavery was. He also came into a world that was dominated by absolute rulers, tyrants, monarchs. At the end of the Roman Republic, when Caesars, when the Caesars came in and took power, they ruled with absolute authority. Julius Caesars was murdered in the Roman Senate in 44 B.C. This only accelerated the centralization of power. The Roman Senate declared Augustus proconsul and tribune of Roman of Rome for life, and he had absolute and total power. He was the commander in chief of all soldiers. He stood above the Senate. He controlled all the civil affairs. And so Jesus came into a world that was dominated by slavery and pretty much one man rule. The absolute opposite of what we have today. All power of the state was in one man's hands. You had the same thing in Palestine, where the ruler of Palestine, who was placed there kind of as a puppet under Rome, his name was Herod. He was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. And that ruler had the single authority to demand that every single baby in a certain region be massacred, murdered. And nobody could stop it. I mean, that's the kind of society they had back then. He had absolute authority over life and death. This guy murdered his whole family, his mother, his wife, his sons. No one ever held him accountable. In the time that Jesus came into the world... You know, you think your taxes are messed up. Nothing compared to what they did back then. You lived back then in a world of unjust taxes that were just exorbitant. They took advantage of people through taxation. They overcharged them. It was a crooked situation. The whole process was crooked. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus when he was converted? What did he do? He was convicted. He was a a tax gatherer. What did he do? It says that he wanted to pay back everything that he extorted. How many times? Fourfold. That's how bad they were ripping people off. I mean, can you imagine going down to Key Market and buying something and the price is jacked up four times? I mean, you just go, whoa, this isn't fair. What are you doing? There's people actually trying to do that down to these poor flood victims. Luckily, our government is there to protect them from that. 
But that's the, the life that was back then. I mean, these tax collectors were extortioners. And there were many unjust taxes. And you, you couldn't appeal to anybody. You either had to pay it or pay the consequences. As a matter of fact, they got so carried away with this, Caesar Augustus declared that all the world would be taxed. He wanted to tax everybody. I mean, can you imagine that? Jesus came to his people, the Jews, in a very unique situation because, you know, they were kind of an underprivileged, oppressed minority in the Roman, with the Roman rule. They had no voice at all in Roman government. They had to pay heavy taxes. That's the world that Jesus came into. They didn't know anything about democracy, about voting, about any of the freedoms that we enjoy here in this country. None of that. And remember when Jesus and his, his disciples asked him, hey, what, are we supposed to pay our taxes? Because in the Jewish mind, that was just the wrong thing to do. You're paying allegiance to somebody who's an idol. And what was Jesus' response? Render to Caesar what? The things that are Caesar's. In other words, you give the government its due. And to God what? You give God his due. Jesus did not come into this world, beloved, with power to force an overthrow of the, the, the Roman government. That's what his disciples thought he was going to do right up until the day he died. That's what they believed. They thought, wow, the Messiah has come. Now we're going to free ourselves of this Roman tyranny. He didn't even seek social change when you stop and think about it. He didn't attempt to eliminate slavery. He didn't come with some political and economic agenda at stake. They were not his concern at all, either in his life or his ministry. He didn't come to bring a new government, to bring democracy, to wave some flag of Judaism saying, hey, we're, you know, it's, we're going to stand up for our rights. His appeal throughout the Gospels, throughout his ministry, throughout his life, was always to hearts of individual men and women. Not for their political freedom. Not for their rights under government. He didn't participate in civil right marches. He just didn't do that. He did not crusade to abolish injustice. What did he do? He preached a life-saving gospel so that a man's soul or a woman's soul could be right with God. Why? Because that's what's eternal. He wasn't interested in a new social order, bringing spiritual order. He mandated the church to carry out this same thing, continue exactly what I've been doing. And to be honest with you, the problems they had with their government back then were, were far worse, far greater than the problems we have today. I mean, even people living in poverty today a lot of times have access to television and modern conveniences. 
So we have to look at this chapter a little differently because we don't live in those times, and yet the principles still are there to apply. So the question is, how do we fit into this? What are we called to do in this society we live in? And what right does government have over us? What's our proper response, you might see? You know, I'm not so much worried about people being healthy and happy and wise and all that. You know, are they saved? See, if they're not saved, then all the other problems in their life are minuscule to the problem of their eternal soul. And the church only has so many resources and so much time and so much energy. And we need to be focused on what really matters for all eternity, what Christ has called us to do. And it's heartbreaking when you think of the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars, no like, that have gone into political campaigns. I mean, where does this money go? I mean, do you ever wonder? I mean, where does it go? I mean, you can only spend so much on television ads. I mean, where does it go? It's crazy. So we need to be concerned not about, we need to be concerned more about the eternal life of people and the internal soul of the lost. So what is our responsibility to government? Well, Paul kind of sums it up in this chapter. And remember, this is just kind of an overview of the whole thing. How do we respond to government? He said this, basically. He said in verse 1, let every person be subject to what? Governing authorities. First of all, you have to be subject, held subject to governing authorities. And then secondly, all the way down there in verse 6, he says, because of this, you also pay taxes. I've talked to some Christians over the years that don't believe they should pay taxes. So legally, they try to find this weird little way to get out of it. It's kind of the same people. I was watching the cops show the other night, and they pulled over some guy. And he wouldn't roll down his window. He wouldn't talk to him. He wouldn't do anything. And finally, the police officer asked him, are you a constitutionalist? Yes, I got the paper right here, and he put it out there. And and they believe they don't have to answer to anybody. And as soon as the police officer over the radio let it out that this the guy he pulled over was constitutionalist, you saw like ten cop cars converge on this guy. Because a lot of these guys are dangerous. I mean they'll they'll shoot a police officer just as soon as look at him, they don't care. And they base it all on a faulty view of our constitution and their rights and, and all this other stuff. See All this we're going to deal with, and we see that in the news, right? You see all this upheaval going on, people out rioting and tearing stuff down. It's crazy. Why? Because there's there's no respect for authority today. And so as Christians, we have to stop and say, well, where is our place? What are we to do? Paul says, as a Christian, you know what? To boil it all down, you're required to do two things. Submit to your government and pay your taxes. That's what Jesus meant when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Submission and money. That's what it boils down to. So when you you stop and you you think of this, you you have to put it in perspective. Because if we don't lay this groundwork, when we get into this, you're going to go, wow, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? So you have to understand the culture and what was really going on. And so there's a connection here. 
Because by submitting ourselves to our government and by paying our taxes, that's what he says here. The connection, really, if you go back to chapter 12, verse uh, 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19 or verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably what? With all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21 says, do not overcome, become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about this non-retaliation, non-vengeance, returning love for hate, good for evil. That's what we're called to do as believers. And it doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what the government is, whether it's a dictatorship or whether it's a democracy. It's irrelevant. We're called to submit. We're called to pay our taxes. We're not called to be violent. We're not called to be a terrorist. We're not called to be subversive. No breach of peace should ever come from Christians. No breach of peace should ever come from Christians. That's what he says in verse 18. As much as it lives, depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Christians are not those who are out there breaching the peace, who are making trouble. They shouldn't be. And what he's saying here, Paul is saying there's no place for personal vengeance. Remember, chapter 12 is dealing with the bodies, dealing with personal relationships. He says, don't avenge. God will take care of that. I mean, if somebody breaks into our house and steals something, and you go to the law, and they arrange for you to get that back or prosecute the person, that's fine. That's just doing what government allows you to do. But so many times you see people almost act as vigilantes. And that's not our place, especially as believers. So you have a process to go through if someone takes advantage of you. But we don't have the right to just go out and blindly be revengeful or vengeful toward other people. Retaliation is not the role of the individual, neither is vengeance. In this chapter, it tells us very clearly, you know what? Within the government authorities, what's the role of government? The government authority is to protect those who are righteous and to what? And to command judgment on those who are not (laughs) acting such. That's the role. And it it comes out of, really, the Old Testament. It talks about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's not on an individual basis. You know, that's not saying, okay, somebody poked me in the eye. I'm going to poke them right back. That's not, you know, as Christians, that's how we like to apply that verse. No, it's talking about national Israel here. It's talking about, you know what, when something happens, there's a method that will take care of it. And that method 
is the principle of the rule of law. Not a personal vengeance, not a personal retaliation. It's the rule of civil government to deal with those who are evildoers. The problem with our society today is we're seeing all over the place the unwillingness for them to do just that. So the passage shows us here that when we return hate or love for hate and good for evil, the government will and should take the proper Recourse. That's the government's role. That's not ours. Now, when you look at the time of, of Paul and what was going on here, I mean, you have to understand, Paul was a Jew. And he was very prideful in his Jewish identity, as most Jews are. And as a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, we'll just kind of end with this. They were conversing with Jesus, and he said this. They, they told him this. They said, we have never been in bondage to anyone. Remember they made that claim? And I thought, that's kind of a ridiculous claim. They've been nothing but in bondage to people. You know, they came under the domination of the Greeks. They were under the Medo-Persians. They were the Babylonians, the Egyptians. I mean, these people had definitely short memories. And it wasn't saying that they never were, but they just, what they were trying to communicate is that we've never been dominated in our hearts. We've never accepted that kind of bondage. And so when you look at the time of Christ and all that they had going on and what they were dealing with, And then you stop and you think, okay, what are we to do? What are we, how are we to behave as Christians here in this world? I mean, back then you had zealots who were Jews who were really like almost terrorists. And they would just go out and exact their own revenge on whoever they wanted to. But see, that's not what we're called to do. In Acts chapter 17, it tells this this about the early church. These have turned the world upside down, and they've come here also. And they all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, one Jesus. So the Romans were threatened by Christ and his followers because they thought, wow, is he trying to set up a kingdom here on earth? And we saw that play out even when Christ was before the authorities. That's a question they asked him. And this isn't the sole text on this. There's one other text over in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And you can look at that in your own time this week, and we'll cover that next week because we're out of time. But I just want you to understand that, you know, when it comes to our government, there's only basically two things that God calls us to do. Submit to them and pay our taxes. Now, if the government tells us to do something that is outside of our our Christian bounds that goes directly against the word of God, well, then you obviously have to not do that and you pay the consequences. And we should be willing to. That's the key. So I would ask in the coming weeks that you begin to pray and read over Romans chapter 13 because next week we'll get into verses 1 through 7. And uh, it's going to be going to be a good time together. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just minister to our hearts this truth. Lord, I know that sometimes.
politics and government and all that stuff can be very infuriating to people to even talk about. And yet, Lord, you have established these leaders over us. They're appointed by you as servants of God. And, and Lord, we have a hard time understanding that sometimes when we look at the lives of these individuals. But, Lord, you're sovereign over all this. And so we're called to simply submit to their authority and pay our taxes. And we should do so with a good attitude. And, Father, we pray that you would just bless our time as we begin this study in Romans 13. I pray for anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that maybe this would be the day they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me from my sin. That's a prayer that you will answer uh, when it comes from a sincere heart. And so, Lord, I pray that as believers we would recognize that we're in this world, but we're not of the world, that we have a message of hope and forgiveness and peace through Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that we wouldn't be shy in sharing that message both with our lips and our lives, that we would live up to the calling to which you've called us. We thank you and we praise you. Bless our fellowship time as well in Jesus' precious name. Amen.